Well, we are officially halfway through our Beatitudes series as we enter into number five this morning. The Beatitudes is this passage in Scripture that encapsulates the opening illustration of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached by the most powerful preacher the world has ever seen, Jesus himself. And he lays the foundation for his sermon by declaring that there's eight different groups of people that are blessed, people who are happy, people who can celebrate, people who live in the favor of God despite what they face. Let's read it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 to 10. We'll read all eight of them this morning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now remember that these values that I've just read out, they're countercultural. They don't immediately come naturally to any of us, but by living out these commands of Jesus, what it does for us as believers is it sets us apart as distinct and different to the world. And as we enter Beatitude number five, it's really interesting to note that this is the first one that we've come across that speaks about how we treat other people. See, the first four were all about the condition and position of our own heart. It's about our approach to sin and being meek, which means we can be powerful and gifted and talented and have all this potential and yet wholly submitted and surrendered to God. It's all about realizing our need for Him. And then we get to Beatitude number five and in Matthew 5, 7, it reads, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, when you first think of mercy, you might kind of immediately struggle to put your finger on exactly what it means. It's not one of those words we use in our everyday language. You might think of someone like Mother Teresa, who had this crazy amount of love for the people around us. You might think of some warrior standing on the front lines of battle, rips a shirt, rubs mud on his face, lifts a spear, and shouts, show no mercy as he runs into battle. Or you might not. Not to be confused with the French word for thank you, merci. Now, today, what I want to do is unpack, I think it's going to be really helpful for us to unpack the difference between grace and mercy. See, perhaps you have noticed one time when you were rude to someone and then they were polite to you afterwards, you thought, oh, they were were gracious. They didn't have to be, but they were gracious. Maybe you've seen someone in the street bend down and offer offer food to someone that was homeless and you thought, That's what mercy looks like. Or maybe you would consider yourself gracious because you tolerate your siblings' inexcusable behavior. Before we unpack it further, I want to give two statements that I think are going to set us up to move forward. Are you ready? Firstly, mercy is this. Mercy is not getting the punishment or judgment we deserve. Micah 7 verse 18, it's not up on the screen, but I'll read it to you. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. And then grace might be defined like this, receiving what you don't deserve. Psalm 103 verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Now these sound like the same thing. They do, but they're actually quite different because grace is associated with favor and is tied to God's character. Mercy is linked to judgment and is the thing we request from a gracious God. In Luke 15, we see this powerful story that unpacks these two concepts that are at play at the same time, and it's the story of the prodigal son. There are two brothers, and the younger brother decides he wants his inheritance early from his father. Now, 
This is incredibly disrespectful to ask for your inheritance while your father is still alive, but out of a great love for his son, the father agrees. The younger son goes off to a distant land and he squanders it all on useless things. The Bible calls it wild living. After all the money is gone and he's got nowhere else to go, he ends up working on a farm, groveling with the pigs, kind of wishing he had the pig food to eat, but he doesn't even get access to that. He finally comes to his senses. He's like, here I am trying to get pig food in a terrible situation. At least back in my father's house, the paid servants had food to eat. He comes to his senses. He thinks, I'll just go back home and ask if I could be accepted back in as a paid servant because I'm no longer worthy to be called a son. Well, he makes the journey back home. And the Bible says that while he's a long way off, his father runs out to him to embrace him and welcome him home. Luke 15 verse 21, the son said to him, the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father arranges a robe, a ring and sandals to be placed on him. He calls for the fattened calf to be killed and they throw this big feast to celebrate. My son was lost, the father said, but now he is found. The older brother hears all the commotion. He hears the music, he hears the partying, he hears what's going on. So he calls one of the servants over, he says, what's going on over there? Why does it sound like there's a party? Your brother has returned, they said. And the fattened calf has been killed and the party is going off. Their favorite song comes on, someone does the fishing rod trick and the servants are lured away to the dance floor. The older brother is peeved, to say the least. To say the least. So he's really angry. And so the father comes out to speak to the older brother. He says, why are you so angry? What's going on? Why are you so upset? And the older brother says this to his dad. He says, dad, look, all these years I have slaved after you. I've been faithful and you've never given me a calf to kill and celebrate with my mates. All of this is unfair. And then he says to his dad, he says, this son of yours, He doesn't even refer to him by his name or even acknowledge that it's his brother. Dad, this son of yours comes back after wasting everything and you throw a party for him. This is incredibly unfair. Luke 15, verse 31 to 32. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because his brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You know, one of the main things that stands out to me as I read this story, I'm not sure if it's the first time you've heard it, is that the younger brother who took the inheritance, wasted it all and came groveling back, was intent on asking his father for mercy. His only request was that he be accepted back in as a paid servant. He felt that his sin was so great, he could never be considered a son again. He knows that he deserves punishment, but he's asking to be spared. He underestimates the heart of his father. The moment that the son gets back with his little prepared speech that he's got, please, dad, accept me back as a hired servant. I can't be a son. The father just interrupts him. He says, stop talking. He arranges that robe, that ring, and those sandals. He calls for the fattened calf to be killed, and a party takes place. The father was anything but aggravated and impatient with his wayward son. In fact, he completely restored him back to the place in the household that he had and gave him his inheritance as a son back. The boy was asking for mercy, but the father also extended grace. My first thought for you this morning is that mercy sees the person, not the fault. Mercy sees the person, not the fault. Look, there's no beating around the bush here, right? This younger son deserved all the hardship that he experienced. He was disrespectful to his father. He wasted his inheritance. He engaged in ungodly living and he found himself groveling with the pigs. And it's so natural for you and I to develop really hard hearts towards those that are in difficult situations because of their own doing. We can have compassion for someone that may have been involved in an accident. We can have compassion on those that may have been the victim of a crime. 
We might have compassion on someone that we hear has lost their job and they end up living on the street. But we might think someone who has made decisions that have led to their own struggle, (laughs) they get what they deserve. And I know that can kind of come naturally to us, but that's just not the response that God is asking us to have. See, the younger son, he deserved to be with the pigs. He deserved to be cast out from the family. He deserved to be shunned and ridiculed and judged when he went home. But God included the story in Scripture so that you and I would understand that mercy allows a person to look beyond what a person has done to the person that God created instead. And it's not to excuse poor behavior, but to perhaps understand that when bad decisions are made, sometimes it comes from a place of brokenness. Why did the son want to leave early? Why did he want his inheritance while his father was still alive? Why did he want to leave the luxury of home for what felt like greener pastures on the other side? We don't know the answer to that, but we do know that the mercy of the, of the father allowed him to come back in and be included in the family again. Mercy is when what we deserve is withheld from us. The rude, they deserve to be ignored. The arrogant deserve to be humbled. The violent deserve prosecution. The sinner deserves death. And yet mercy finds us in our brokenness. Mercy looks to humanity rather than humiliation. It looks to restore a person even if undeserved. How might you be a little more merciful to those around you? Could your generosity be based on love rather than merit? Could you extend forgiveness to someone that doesn't deserve it, someone who may have hurt you when you know they actually, quite honestly, deserve the opposite? And here's where I maybe need to clarify where mercy ends and that extra element of grace extends. Mercy restores a person. Grace promotes a person. Mercy is the withholding of punishment and judgment. Grace is the extension of favor. See, the younger brother would have been shown mercy had he just been accepted back into the household as a paid servant given a fresh start and an undeserved new beginning. But it was grace that caused the father to throw a party, get the robe, the ring, and the sandals and place them on him. Your mercy towards someone else doesn't have to celebrate them, but it is called to love and restore them. You don't have to agree or relate to a person to show them mercy. Mercy sees someone as a person, and based on that, It leaves the judgment and the justice up to God. We simply choose to love. You know, something that has always seemed very bizarre to me, and to this day, I still can't quite get my head around it, is that there are these things called the rules of war, or um, it's actually worded the international humanitarian law. When two countries go at war, there's rules that they're meant to follow. This, This is bizarre to me. I would think they just wanted to decimate each other for victory at any cost, showing no mercy. Like, who cares for rules when you're going to war? And yet one of those rules, whether it's completely followed or not, I don't know, but it's that a medic is meant to help a a wounded soldier with compassion, even if they're from the enemy's camp. If there is a wounded soldier, a medic should help them, regardless of where they're from. This is this is crazy. Can you imagine being a medic? Like this guy was just trying to shoot dead my comrades minutes ago and now he's on the ground wounded and I'm expected to treat him like he's one of my own, to help him, to heal him as best as I can. This is a really strong picture of mercy, to restore a person when they seemingly don't deserve it, to see the person and not the fault, to consider every human fearfully and wonderfully made and on that basis alone we show them love and compassion. The father in this parable had every reason to turn his face away from his son, and yet mercy saw him restore the son back onto his feet. Second thought this morning is that mercy gets someone back on their feet. 
Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. You know, the beautiful thing about mercy is that it has a really big picture, long-term view. Because if mercy is about helping to restore someone back, to pardon their punishment, to extend forgiveness where it isn't deserved, then it's acknowledging that this would propel them into a brighter future. There's no obvious benefit to the one showing mercy. The one who is merciful doesn't really benefit from being merciful. It's the one that receives it that truly benefits. You know, we all make mistakes. We all mess up. For most people in the room, your teenage years are filled with more mistakes than they are achievements. I thank God there was no social media or camera phones when I was growing up. I was a full idiot, and you won't know the extent of it because it wasn't recorded. I feel for the teenagers of today. It can be really easy to judge the mistakes of others, can't it? Jesus highlights this in Matthew 7, 3-4 when he says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust? He's like picking the smallest thing he can describe. You look for a speck of sawdust perhaps in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when at the same time there is a plank in your own eye? It can be so easy to look at someone when they're down and you forget that you warmed up that spot before they got there. Mercy extends a handout because we believe that maybe even though they're down, their greatest days could be ahead of them. You know, we can be so easy to judge ourselves by our intentions and others by their fruit. It can be easier to justify our own mistakes and then judge the mistakes of others harshly. We think, well, I meant well even if I messed up, but I don't care if they meant well, they've messed up. We can be really harsh like this. The other day I was watching the AM show in, in the morning and uh, there was this story about a guy named Manu Vatuvai who used to play rugby league uh, for the New Zealand Warriors. And I don't know if anyone's told you, but this is our year. <laughs> this, this is the year. Anyway. Kaya, that sort of negativity is not welcome here. I need someone else's support. My rugby union team's gone down the drain. Anyway, Manu uh, had been charged with drug charges. Obviously, he'd messed up real bad here. He'd been charged with drug charges, and he'd spent some time in prison. And I think from memory, watching this uh, little piece on the AM show, he just he's finishing up his time in prison. He did the crime and he just completed his time. And the report was that the New Zealand Warriors might be welcoming him back, not as a player, he's too old for that now, but as some sort of advisory mentor coaching type role. And there was this big debacle going on where people were emailing into the AM show sharing their views on the matter. They were saying, this guy's a druggie, he doesn't deserve to be welcomed back. What message does this send to our kids? This guy doesn't deserve another chance. And then Ryan Bridges, the host of the AM show, he brought up a really good point. He said, if this guy, Manu Vaitavai, had done the crime, which he did, there's no debating that, and if he had finished doing his time and wanted to get back on his feet, how is it possible if nobody gives him a chance? You know, if we don't create pathways for people to get back on their feet, we're part of the problem because we're not creating space to believe that they could grow and they could learn and they could change and God might get a hold of them and their greatest days might lay ahead of them. I'm so thankful that when I was a full-blown munter, there were people willing to welcome me in and include me in things. Is there someone in your world who you wrote off years ago? You've just closed the door. Maybe just maybe they've grown. Maybe they've changed. Maybe they've realized their mistake, their folly. Maybe they've developed Maybe God has got a hold of them, and maybe it's worth looking at them a little bit differently these days. See, mercy at its core is about a second chance, right? It's about giving someone another shot. 
It's about understanding that life has ups and downs. And if we're in the position to help someone get back onto their feet, even if we feel like they don't deserve it, then that show of mercy might be the difference between that person living out the rest of their days with purpose or not. Each of us in the room has had a second chance or a third chance, some a fourth, a fifth, a sixth chance. At the very least, all of us have been offered a second chance by God. When we can't possibly make ourselves right with God in our own strength, He extends forgiveness to us while we're still sinners. You know, when that older brother hears the partying going on to celebrate the return of his younger brother, he had a big moan to his dad. It's interesting that he essentially says this. He says, I've been faithful all these years. And when he comes back after wasting everything, he's celebrated and you even kill the fattened calf to help do it. It seems like the older brother wasn't that bothered by the idea of mercy. He just couldn't get his head around the extent of his father's grace. See, if the younger brother had been welcomed back just as a paid servant, like he originally wanted to, he would have been shown mercy. The older brother might have been okay with that. Family's family, after all. If he had just been forgiven and sort of included back in some way, he might have been okay with that. But it's the fact that a party was thrown and a robe and sandals and a ring were put on him. It's the fact that the son was elevated. This is where the older brother came unstuck. Mercy is incredible. Grace is inexplainable. Mercy forgave him. Grace granted him back into being a son. Mercy said, you deserve a second chance. Grace says, you deserve a second chance with me. A Bible scholar once explained it like this. He says, perhaps a bank employee steals a lot of money. He is found out and he repents. The bank's authorities decide that they're going to show him mercy and not charge or prosecute him. He is, of course, relieved of his duties and can no longer work at the bank. He has just received mercy. That alone is amazing. He'll feel really grateful and rejoice that he's not going to jail and his family won't be feeling left disadvantaged by the prosecution. He has been spared. But what if the bank authorities, along with forgiving him and not prosecuting, allow him to keep his job? Unthinkable, especially in a bank. You steal money, that's, that, it's not good anywhere, but especially not a bank. That would be considered unthinkable. And what if the authorities did not end it there? They not only spared him of the prosecution, they not only allowed him to keep his job, but they promoted him to bank manager. This would be amazing grace. This is what happens when we present the goodness of God in such a way that it gets the attention of the church and the world. And we would say, there needs to be an answer for this. There needs to be a consequence for sin. And the answer to that is grace. Because we don't understand grace when it happens, we can be like the older brother. We struggle to see how God's grace should apply to a person. The Bible says where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And I'm not here to say, just do what you want. Live your life. There's enough grace for you. We don't want to take God's grace for granted. But how good is God? Where no matter how big your sin, grace abounds more. Oh, but I'm real bad. Oh, but God's grace is real good. Oh, but I'm really, really worst of the worst bad. Well, God's grace is really, really best of the best good. We must have our mind renewed to look at people from a grace mindset. Otherwise, we end up condemning people that God isn't condemning. This is what Jesus refers to in Matthew 12, 7. He says, If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Jesus is essentially saying, because you don't understand to the full extent the gracious nature of the Father, you keep condemning those that God isn't condemning. Imagine the impact you and I and us as a church could have on our community and the people around us if we looked at them through the eyes of mercy, where our first response was to help people up, to encourage them to believe the best in them and believe that God has great days ahead of them. Mercy gets someone back on their feet, someone like you. 
third and final thought this morning is mercy doesn't start with us. In Matthew 18, we read a powerful story where Jesus tells this parable. But in my Bible, it's got a little subheading that says the parable of the unmerciful servant. Peter comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, how many times should I forgive someone? In other words, he's saying, Jesus, when should my mercy run out? Is it seven times? Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's 70 times seven. In other words, your mercy should never run out. And then Jesus tells his parable to Peter and the other disciples that are standing around to help them understand. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Remember that the Beatitudes are instructions on how to live like we're in the kingdom of God. Jesus doubles down on the mercy thing here to help us understand that being merciful is part of what sons and daughters of God are called to be like. So the story goes like this in the Bible, that the king begins the settlement and a man who owes him 10,000 bags of gold is brought to him. That's a lot. Now, in case you're wondering how much, the Bible says it's about 20 years worth of debt for a man on an average laborer's wage. So this man with 20 years, that's a big debt, comes and the king says, pay up or I'm selling you and your family to pay for the debt. I I originally thought that's surely not enough still. Like Anyway, he's like, we're going to sell your whole family to pay the debt. And this guy that owes 10,000 bags of gold, he falls to his knees, he grovels, he says, please be patient with me. Give me a little more time to pay back the debt. Well, the master goes a step further and cancels the debt and releases the man. That's amazing. Well, 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 this same man, who's now free of his debt and pardoned, goes to someone that owes him money. He says, hey, you need to pay up the debt that you owe me. And that guy falls to his knees. He says, please be patient with me. I just need a little more time to pay back the debt. Now, this guy owes about three months worth of a debt. So not as much, but still a decent sized debt. And this, is, this guy who's just been released and forgiven the massive debt has no mercy. He's like, nope, I'm chucking you in jail and you're staying there until you can pay it all. Word gets out to the king that this has happened. And he calls him out for it, as you can understand. He says, are you meaning to tell me that I forgave you of a massive debt and you can't even turn around and show mercy to someone else that owed you? The king has him thrown in prison until he can pay back every cent of that 20-year debt, which is crazy because the last time I played Monopoly, if you're in jail, you can't collect income. So it's gone, take him forever. And then Jesus finishes this whole parable with a sobering statement to Peter and the disciples. Matthew 18, 35. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you if you don't forgive your brother or sister from your heart. A man that was forgiven of a 20-year debt couldn't extend forgiveness to a three-month debt. What is owed to you will always be less than what you would owe to God. And I say would because... The, mer- the, the measure of the mercy and grace shown to us is always more than the measure of mercy and grace that God is asking us to show to others. But because He extends that great to, uh, grace to us, we no longer owe anything. The debt has been paid. When Jesus says that those who show mercy will themselves be shown mercy, He's asking us to first recognize the mercy that we've been shown. Uh, band, you can join me. It's important that we don't get all high and mighty, thinking we've been so virtuous, so merciful, such kind people, when we show mercy to people. It's true. When we extend that love and compassion to someone, we are being merciful, but we need to understand the mercy doesn't start with us. The mercy is first received by us, and then it's something we extend on, just like the guy that was made an example of in that story. And this is the really interesting thing about this beatitude. 
we are told that if we don't extend mercy to others, we won't receive it ourselves. And yet we've already received it ourselves. It kind of looks like God's setting up this cycle of mercy where we acknowledge the mercy that we've received and as a response to that great love, we choose to show mercy and love and compassion to others. And as we do that, God showers us with love and mercy and we receive it and we extend it and we receive it and we extend it. We show mercy and kindness to others and then He shows it to us. Although I just feel to say that the craziest thing about God's mercy and grace is He still shows it to us, doesn't He? Even when we're reluctant and slow and disobedient in the process. Remember that mercy is attached to judgment. So to look at someone for who they are and not what they've done allows us to withhold judgment and withhold ridicule. We choose to not give the person what they actually deserve. We choose to restore, restore somebody with the belief that God actually has great days ahead for that person. Mercy will restore them, but grace elevates them. And it's that grace that elevates us. Not only were you and I extended mercy on the cross of Calvary where Jesus was persecuted in our place, not only did He take the punishment that we deserve so that we could skip punishment, not only were we given a way to be forgiven and no longer deemed as guilty, but then God also extends an unfathomable amount of grace and welcomes us back as sons and daughters. His grace takes us from being guiltless to being welcomed in as sons and daughters. Two different things. To be grafted into God's family. To be co-heirs with Christ, which means we get the full inheritance of heaven. We get filled with the Holy Spirit. We get these spiritual gifts that we get to use to make a difference in the lives of others. And we get to live in His blessing and favor. That is the grace of God. Mercy brings us up out of the miry clay and sets our feet on the rock. And grace says, no longer will you be a slave, but a son or a daughter. Mercy wipes our debt. Grace promotes us as children. God wasn't content on just sparing you an eternity without Him, but His amazing grace envelops us in a love that we never deserved. And I'd love to just lead us in a time of prayer now. For anyone that is in this room and you relate perhaps in some way to the younger son in that story. I'm not saying you took your inheritance early and you ran away, but there was this sense of, I can make it on my own without God. I want to be in control. I want to have the power. I can carve out my own future. And you feel like, man, I've messed that up. I've tried that a few times. And here I am, you know, metaphorically groveling with the pigs back at square one. Don't seem to be able to make a way for myself. It's because you were never designed to. It's because you were always designed to live in the mercy and grace of God. Not striving. I'm not saying don't work hard. That's not what the Scripture is saying. But to understand that you can't make yourself right with God. And that's a good thing because it means it's in His hands, not yours. You simply come back to the Father. And when you're a long way off, He comes running to welcome you back home. Why don't we close our eyes? I want to lead you in a really powerful prayer. It's a prayer that is about you turning your heart towards God. The younger sibling in that story, the Bible says, came to his senses. And actually a moment of salvation where you receive forgiveness for your sin and the promise of eternity in heaven with Him, it's kind of in a sense coming to our senses. It's having an aha moment. It's realizing that actually, maybe the God that designed me and made me and has purpose for me is the one that I ought to know and to commit my life to so that I would know Him. And I want to lead you in a prayer. If you don't know Jesus, 
or you once knew him, but you would say this morning, I'm more of a church person than I am a Jesus person, then I invite you to pray this prayer. You make it your own. I'll pray it out loud. You pray this in your heart. Say, dear God, I acknowledge that I've sinned. Sin being just chosen my own way. I've thought I've known better. I've run my own direction. I've thought I could make it without you. I've turned my back on you, either knowingly or unknowingly. And this is a moment, Lord, where I know that your grace is sufficient for me. Your mercy meets me in my greatest point of need. And Lord, I ask you to come into my life as my Lord and my Savior. You're my Lord. You're my King, the one to lead me, the one to guide me, the one I can trust with my life. And you are my Savior, the only one that could have paid that price on the cross. You took that punishment so mercifully so that I could be spared the judgment. And I thank you for that today, Jesus. I choose to commit to you my whole life. I don't understand it all, but I don't need to. I know you are worthy to be trusted in Jesus' name. With every eye closed and head bowed, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, I'm so proud of you. That's incredible. I want you to do something nice and brave in just a moment. I'm not going to embarrass you, but I am going to ask you to lift your hand nice and high. I'll see it, acknowledge it. You can put it straight back down after that. If you prayed that prayer for yourself and you meant it, lift your hand nice and high in three, two, one. Go now. Awesome, 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 awesome. Yeah, bunch left, right is heaps. I can't count, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Thank you for your mercy to meet each of these individuals right where they're at and that today is a brand new day for them. I pray, Lord, of every one of those individuals, even those that may, may have prayed the prayer but didn't lift their hand, God, it was never about that. But I thank you for their faith. I thank you that they're transformed by your grace today. May they continue to be transformed. May they grow in loving relationship with you. May they know your voice and your presence and your closeness. May they find healing and wholeness. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.